0: Well, good morning again, and uh, we're going to jump in this morning to an interesting part of this narrative. We've been working our way uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, story by story through the book of Acts since January. And uh, so if you're just kind of hopping in this morning, uh, we're going to get to see a whole story kind of start to finish. And it's one of those stories that kind of bounces back and forth, the great Alfred Hitchcock called it the meanwhile back at the ranch effect, right? Like you have this movie and you're watching it, there's the story going on, and then all of a sudden it switches to another thing. And then eventually these things are going to collide. So movie makers now uh, call it either parallel storylines, or they will call it tandem narratives, where this story's building, and then all of a sudden it switches to another story, and then eventually those stories are going to kind of come together. And the problem with tandem narratives or parallel storylines, is for all of us in the room who are over 40, if you fall asleep in the middle of one of those narratives, and then you wake up and it's a whole nother story, you think somebody changed the channel. But eventually they're going to come together. So I am going to date myself a little bit here this morning. I'm old enough that I remember my dad turning on the old Batman TV show, right? Where in the middle of the story, all of a sudden it would cut to this really quick spinning graphic, and the Batman logo would kind of come out at you, and the music would go, you know what I'm talking about? All right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can literally YouTube Batman transitions, <laughs> and they'll just have a whole collection of, where it would switch to this parallel storyline, this tandem narrative. This morning, we're going to see in the text a, a tandem narrative, and here's the sneak peek. We serve a God who's governing every narrative that's ever existed. He's going to bring them together in a beautiful gospel moment. And so uh, if you're a guest today, we have a tradition. Before we dive into the text, we hold up our Bibles and say a creed together and a prayer together before we jump in. And if that's not where you're at in your spiritual journey, then don't feel an obligation to join with us in that today. But if it is... Uh, resonating with you, then we encourage you to grab your Bible. Uh, if you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Oh, my goodness. I see Corey Corrick sitting in the back corner. Hey, how are you? Oh, my goodness. It's good to see you. Sorry. I haven't seen you in a long time. Okay. So grab your Bibles, if you would, please. Squirrel. It's a squirrel named Corey. Hold up your Bibles and let's say the creed together this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter number 10. And I'll tell you, we're going to cover this whole chapter today. And it's a lengthy one, but we're going to move pretty quick. Uh, we're going to read most of it together as we're moving through, um, and so I encourage you to to kind of dive in. This is just such an, a crucial and important chapter, and I say that a little bit selfishly. Uh, we'll explain why in a minute, but we're going to kind of run through uh, Acts chapter 10 here together this morning. Where we left off last week, the Apostle Peter... Uh, ended up in a town called Joppa. If you remember, there was a, a follower of Jesus, a, a godly woman there named Tabitha who had died, and uh she was revived. And then he stayed there at the house of a guy named Simon, which was also Peter's given name, Simon. But this was Simon the Tanner, not Simon the Peter. And so uh we pick up where he's still there, but when we go from chapter 9 to chapter 10, we get a... And we're skipping... To a whole different place. Verse number one of Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a centurion, century 100. A centurion was a ruler of a 100 soldiers in the Roman uh, army and historians say this, I'm not that old, but historians say that the centurions were actually the most important leader in the entire army, that it was actually in those uh, groups of centuries, uh, the, those groups of 100 soldiers, that's where they won their battles, As they would organize it, and those centurions were the ones who were doing life with the troops and had the most influence with the troops, and so powerful and important man here, part of the Italian cohort. And then listen to this interesting description for a Caesarean, for a Gentile. He was a devout man who feared capital G, singular, God. That made him a weird centurion. Because it would have been normal for a Roman centurion to fear the, small g, plural, God's. So this is interesting that he fears the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. This is interesting. In verse number three. About the ninth hour of the day. So again, strange for a Gentile centurion, but really normal for a, a, a Jewish man or woman that they would pray three times a day. The Jewish day started at what we would call 6 a.m. And so the ninth hour of the day would be the third time of prayer. They would gather for prayer at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. And so he is praying at the normal afternoon Jewish time of prayer here, 3 p.m. And look at what happens. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. This is the second time so far in the book of Acts that we've seen a person who wasn't connected to the narrative, connected to what's happening with Ecclesia, But yet they're seeking God from a distance, and God supernaturally is going to pursue this person. The first one was the Ethiopian eunuch, who we believe was also Jewish and Ethiopian. He had been in Jerusalem worshiping, but yet was confused. So here again, we see this angel appear to him. Verse number four, he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And Check out this language, man. This is incredible. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Like not just God took notice, because that would be amazing enough. Not just God caught wind. No. Like, there's there's a Holy Memorial Day recognition happening at the throne of God from the prayers of this Gentile man in his household. Incredible. Verse 5. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. There's a couple things that are strange here. Um, you know, the word angel simply means messenger. Why did the angel just not tell him the gospel? Right? I mean, if God's performing something as supernatural, as sending an angel to call you by name. I don't know about you. I've never had that happen. I've not seen any angels. Right? If you have, let's have lunch. I'd really like to ask some questions. So God's performing something supernatural. Why not just declare the gospel through the angel? And here's the reason why. Because we serve a God who in his sovereign reign chooses to use men and women to proclaim the gospel to men and women. We get to be a part of God's glorious plan to reach people. How great is that? Like the angel actually can't explain experientially the gospel. The angel... Hasn't been saved. He wants to send him to somebody who's tasted grace to describe grace. What a privilege we have to be the instruments of grace in the hand of God. I think that's why the angel doesn't tell the gospel here. But there's another reason. Because we serve a God who isn't just pursuing one person at a time. See, he's not just after Cornelius here. He's also after the conversion of Peter. What do you mean the conversion of Peter? He's already born again. Yeah, but God's in the business of continuing to change our hearts until we're fully conformed to the image of Jesus on that great day. And he's still working on Peter's heart through the power of the gospel. we're going to see him pursue Peter. By the way, it's interesting. We mentioned the the Ethiopian eunuch that we talked about a few weeks ago. And Philip was the one that God sent to talk to him, if you remember that. I don't know if you remember, but when chapter 8 ended, Philip is kind of transported away from that moment and ends up in Caesarea. When we fast forward to Acts chapter 21... The Apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and he stops over and spends the night at the house of Philip in Caesarea. Years later, so Philip landed here, had a house, had a life here. Why would God say, send your people approximately 35 miles out of the way? Because God was up to something in the heart of Peter that's crucial for us today, too. And then he gives him a GPS. He's lodging with one Simon, a different Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And now we know why Peter chose to stay there. It was ocean view. That's cool. Verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Meanwhile... Back at the ranch. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour. So this is the the second time of prayer in the Jewish uh, ritual prayers. This is noon time. He went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. You ever been praying and your stomach starts growling? You're like, Lord, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to put you on hold. He's praying and he got hungry. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. There's a couple words that might seem insignificant but that are profoundly significant in this next verse. In it were all kinds Those two little words are really, really important for this Jewish man practicing his Jewish prayer at the Jewish noon with his Jewish system. All kinds. Now, in this image, there were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. You know, they say the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, (laughs) right? Well, check this out. There came a voice to him that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat, which just goes to show you that being a meat eater is biblical, honors the Lord. And so tomorrow, as you gather around your grill, you're praising the Lord as you consume everything but the hot dogs. We don't know what they actually are, but everything else is good. Verse 14, Peter said, this is really funny. Peter said, by no means, Lord. Which is really like, it's hard for us to to understand how weird that phrasing is. Like, there's no such thing as saying no, comma, Lord. The word Lord means el capitan, el jefe. Spent last week in the Dominican. Those are the only two Spanish words I know. (laughs) It means... Boss, with all capital letters. So you kinda can't say, no, boss, right? I mean, maybe you try that with your boss. I don't think, well, as bad as the labor shortage is, maybe you can get away with that today. But that's not technically appropriate. And this is why this is hard for him. He said, I have never eaten anything that isn't kosher. That is common, that is not common, That's not clean. Never. Never. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. In the Jewish dietary restrictions, the law of God was extremely clear about what you could eat and what you could not eat. And then in this vision, he sees this big sheet. Why a sheet? I don't know. Why four corners? We don't know. When theologians like this represents north, south, east, and west, it means the entire we don't know. But in it, what we do know is there are both kosher and unkosher animals. No, say it isn't so. And God is telling him eat up. Because he's about to show him this isn't about your diet. This is about your heart towards humankind, all kinds of people, kosher and unkosher, Jew and Gentile. And, and here's the reality. <laughs> here's what's common for all of us. Apart from Jesus, we're all unclean. That's the common denominator that we all share. We're all unclean apart from the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So praise his name. There's not some of us who are on the outside and some of us who get welcomed in. When the voice came to him again a second time and said, What God has made clean, do not call common. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For both food and for saving grace. (laughs) That's very American. Praise God. This happened three times. Because Peter was just slow. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Verse 17, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, As to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down. Three men. It's no longer about animals anymore. It's now about people. Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who's well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house, and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. That's a big deal. We'll talk about that in a minute. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day he entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he called together his relatives and close friends pause for just a second That centurion might have been a great leader of his 100 soldiers But there's no higher calling than being a family member or a friend of a person who's walking with the Lord Our first influence is with our family and friends So we might be killing it in the boardroom or winning in the classroom, doing great on the assembly line, rocking and rolling in our cubicle. But at the end of the day, what are we doing to influence our friends and our relatives towards Jesus? That's the marker in the sand. But that's not what the text is about. Keep going. When Peter entered Cornelius, met him. And look what he did. He fell on his feet and worshipped him. This is so important. But Peter did not say, yeah, I'm awesome. And you're a Gentile and I'm better than you. Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And again, this is not what the text is about, but it's worth stopping here and just saying, I wish more religious leaders were standing on platforms saying, please, whatever you do, don't worship me. I'm just a man. This is all about Jesus. Amen. Come on, church, give me a little something here today. Verse 27, as he walked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered again. I think that's just so awesome. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Hallelujah. It's unlawful. So by the way, just, just for perspective, it was unlawful for Peter to welcome those three Gentile men and to be guests in his home where he was staying first. It was even more unlawful for them, him to then enter. This Gentile house, one theologian said, that was probably the most difficult step Peter ever took. Because in their, in their understanding of the law, to have any association with a Gentile was a sin against God. Historians tell us that when Pharisees would walk down the street, they would hold their robes tightly to themselves so that their fabric didn't accidentally brush up against a Gentile. Or a woman. Because they were so much better than that. that that's the, and by the way, that same heart continued to rule in the early church. We're, we're going to find out probably in September in Acts chapter 15 that a big uproar happens about what God's doing among the Gentiles. And we see this same heart exists, but God's up to something incredible in this story. It's about to change everything. Perhaps no one at this point has more influence in this young infant thing called Ecclesia than Peter. And God's leveraging this experience to show him that all kinds of people have value to God. And are worthy of the proclamation of the gospel. We'll skip the next couple of verses because Cornelius just tells him about his vision that we've already read. Pick up in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Scholars tell us that most rabbis would teach at this time in history that the only reason God created Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell. Their worldview By some of the most prominent and influential rabbis at this time Was that a Gentile's purpose on planet earth Was to be kindling For the fires of hell Peter says Truly I understand that God shows no partiality Which means this It means there's no one on planet earth That God loves more than you Can we just sit in that for a second today? There's, there's no color of skin that God loves more than yours. There's no language that God loves more than another. There's no culture that God loves more than another. There's no educational status. There's no economic status. There's no background. There's no side of the tracks that God loves more than He loves you. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Verse 35, but in every nation, among anyone who fears him and does what is right and is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, and not just doing good, by the way, doing better than we've ever done. Doing good without sin. Healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And he was God. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. (laughs) But God raised him on the third day. And made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who'd been chosen by God as witnesses. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people. And what's happening in this very moment as he's saying this, is he's redefining what the people means. (laughs) It doesn't just mean Jewish people. It means everybody with a pulse. It means everybody who bears the image of God. To testify that he's the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You know what that is? That's an articulation of the gospel message. He finds himself in the most unlikely place with the most unlikely people doing the most unlikely thing. He's declaring the gospel to this Gentile household, friends and family who've come together, a Memorial Day barbecue centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. All who heard the word. The believers from among the circumcised, the, the Jewish brothers who'd come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. then they asked him to remain for some days. You see in this incredible story, for the first time yet, we see, not just glimpses of, but carried out, that the gospel is for everyone, for all kinds of people. How great is that? There's a story I've heard a lot in my life about Mahatma Gandhi that I always just assumed was one of those exaggerated, hyperbolic old wives' tale kind of a thing. It's about a month ago I started studying this story to find out is this true. And apparently, the story I'm about to tell is actually true. Who knew it wasn't just a sermon illustration? If you're not familiar with who Gandhi is, I don't know what rock you've been under, but pretty influential leader in human history from India, was Hindu, was a law student, and his studies ended up taking him to South Africa, Calcutta. And by his own testimony, as a young man, he was incredibly drawn to the person of Jesus. He was incredibly drawn to the teachings of Jesus and to the ideals of Christianity. Specifically, he was enamored with the Sermon on the Mount and believed it could change the world. By the way, I agree with him. But he believed specifically that Christianity and the teachings of Jesus and specifically the Sermon on the Mount were the answer to the problem. What problem? The caste system. In his people. Where you are born into a lower caste. or you're born into an upper caste. And that's where you are for the rest of your life. A life of privilege. Or a life of struggle. A life of oppression. He believed the answer... To the caste system was the teachings of Jesus. And he was so drawn to the teachings of Jesus that by his own testimony, he went to a Christian church on a Sunday morning to hear for the first time. He says that he was met at the door by a white skinned South South African who told him, you need to go find a place to worship for people with your brown skin. He sent him away. And he would later write these words. He said, There seems to be a caste system even within Christianity. So I suppose I shall just remain a Hindu. And he sought to reform from within that system. And then eventually... After rejecting Christ and rejecting Christianity, he said the phrase that I remember hearing a lot of times in my life. I would be a Christian were it not for Christians. What we learn about this incredible encounter here in the early stages of this thing called Ecclesia are a couple things. Number one, it tells us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. We don't know that Cornelius knew anybody who knew anybody who knew anybody who knew Jesus. And God still made a way to get the gospel to him. No one's beyond the reach of God's grace. Number two, we learn God uses people who've experienced his grace to be conduits of his grace. We get to be a part of his story of people coming to saving faith. What a calling. What a privilege. What a responsibility. Not even the angels get our job description. And the third thing we learn in this is there is no place for bigotry or favoritism or discrimination among the body of Jesus Christ. None. It's anti Jesus. And even when we exist somewhere where the laws approve of discrimination, remember Peter said it's unlawful. Even when you might exist in a system where the laws allow for discrimination, it's still anti-Christ. It's still opposed to our faith and to the gospel that we proclaim. In the last two weeks we've seen glimpses of a lot of hate. Two Saturdays ago on May 14th in Buffalo, New York an 18 year old walked into a shopping center ten killed and three wounded for no other reason than hate unless we think that somehow a uniquely American problem or even a uniquely white and black problem understand that what motivated that young man were the the writings, the manifesto from an Australian who in 2019 entered two different Muslim mosques in New Zealand and killed 51 people. Hate is not a unique problem to our culture. And the very next day, on Sunday, May 15th, A Chinese immigrant walked into a Taiwanese church with hate in his heart. Intent to kill as many as he could. Mercifully, he was subdued. Five were wounded, one lost their life. And then nine days later, in elementary school, 19 children two adults lost their life and what we realize is we're in a moment in history that's desperate for a, a better kingdom a greater narrative And the response to these hateful acts has unfortunately been hateful responses from people who want to argue about the politics of it. People who proclaim Jesus on their social media are proclaiming hate for people who disagree with them politically in this moment. I want to share with you another story from the past two weeks that didn't make any headlines. There were no reporters. There was no articles written about it. But this past Thursday night, May the 26th, there's a group of men and women who gathered together in a hotel conference room in the Dominican Republic. And just this little small group of people As we began to sing the praises of God, in that room were Dominicans and Haitians and Filipinos and Americans, all from very different ways of life, from all kinds of different backgrounds. There's only one thing that brought us together in that room. The saving grace of Jesus Christ. (laughs) I was supposed to get up and speak to this group. And as we were worshiping together, I just got overcome. I was trying to stop crying so I could read my notes and start talking. And Juan Carlos said, this is a glimpse of heaven. This is a glimpse of that great day where men and women and children from every tribe and every nation and every language and every culture that's ever existed will stand shoulder to shoulder and will with one voice declare, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and power and glory forever. Amen. Amen. That's the beauty of the story of Jesus. And let me just tell you why this chapter is so important to me selfishly. If you remember, I said that at the beginning. Here's why. Because I'm a Gentile. (laughs) If Acts chapter 10 didn't happen, heaven couldn't be mine. (laughs) This is how the gospel made its way to the end of the earth. It's how the gospel showed up in your zip code. And it's the only hope that the gospel will continue to advance in our generation. Is that those of us who exist in this moment in the story of God will see that we are not at the job that we've been placed by accident. But on purpose you don't live on the street that you live on on accident, but on purpose you're not raising the kids You're raising on accident, but on purpose you're not related to the people you're related to on accident But on purpose so that we might point them to the saving grace of jesus christ Because god's still building for himself a people And there's still hope in the story of jesus And even as we navigate difficult conversations to come about the politics of hate may we be the reasonable voices of self control of clear thinking so that we might by god's grace not win political battles but win hearts and minds for jesus christ the hope of the metroplex is sitting in this room today That might feel like a big badge to wear. That might be intimidating to you. But I believe with all my heart, the hope of the story is sitting in this room. Somebody brought the message to you. Whose life has he placed us in that we might carry it to them?